invite you to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 11. Our text this morning is verses 14 through 19. 14 through 19 of Revelation chapter 11. Well, let's give our full attention to God's word being read. And then we will pray in preparation. Hear the word of the Lord. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is God's word. Let's pray. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And as our Bibles lay open before us, Father, we know that this living and active word accomplishes in us things that we cannot do for ourselves. It is our daily bread. It is food for our souls. It is life to us. And Lord, in the preaching of it, which your word commands, we are fed somehow. But we recognize the the work isn't primarily the man speaking, but it is your spirit. And so we're asking, Father, that you would accomplish in us what we can't do, what no man can do, what only your spirit can do. So give us, give us that attentiveness of mind and heart and a readiness to obey. that we may increasingly reflect the character of Jesus until that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, one of the things that, that as we started our journey through, through Revelation, one of the very first things that we learned was if you read this book, you will be blessed. And I've been blessed by the study of it. Uh, That's a fact because we're told that in the scriptures. So we want to enjoy this blessing and and some of that blessing is is finding uh, there's judgment and there's a lot of that in Revelation. Now to this point in our journey through this book, through Revelation, in John's vision we have seen seven seals being opened and to this point six trumpets have sounded revealing 
particularized judgments on those who dwell in the earth. And that's, that's the revelation language for those who are unrepentant, those who have rejected the Lord Jesus. Those judgments come in the form of physical consequences that were very much like the plagues on Egypt, but then also uh, what were called woes, spiritual consequences. These are the forces of evil destroying their own, okay, these woes. What happens is God removes his restraints, and so ultimately the ungodly experience the consequences, the spiritual consequences of their own rebellion, their own idolatry, their own sexual immorality. Now prior to the section, there's been this uh, explanatory interlude, and this is the previous section, which, uh, which began in verse 10, the angel and the little scroll is my heading in my ESV Bible and the two witnesses. That was this explanatory interlude, which I take it was, was uh, John understanding his prophetic mission, and then by extension that being given to the church, and then, then really for the church to understand the, the, the outworking of that prophetic mission, the spiritual protection that comes to the people of God, but the fact that there's no guarantee of physical protection. It's a call to faithfulness for the, for the church to proclaim Christ, even in the face of suffering and death. Now, in our text, we're now at this third woe. This is the seventh trumpet. And what John sees here are images and divine pronouncements of both woe and reward. And I take it that what John is seeing here is a picture of the end. It's, it's one picture. We'll get more uh, as we move through this. But it's one picture of the end. It is where the unrepentant are judged. But then the people of God really are on the precipice of eternal, unhindered, sinless fellowship with God in His presence. And that's physical presence. And the physical presence of the anointed Son of God. So we see in this passage both woe and reward. And those two words, they show up in this. Woe and reward in this section of, of the Bible. So what is a woe? Just to define it here from in the Bible term. A woe is an ex, really an exclamation of dread. Dread. A sense of profound grief and the certainty of doom it's like i'm undone that's like prophet isaiah when in his vision he saw god and he said woe is me it's it's a sense of profound this is it's over i'm done it's but then there's reward and i think we all get what that is but but in the context here it's to give uh really uh, to someone as an Something, someone, it, it's for, to, to give to someone as, as uh, an expression of saving care, right? So, the proper definition, to give one to someone, to follow him as leader and master. It's, it's, it's this sense of, of care and, and protection for the one that's loved from, from the one who is in charge, the one who is the master, so the interest, the eternal interest, ultimately, that's what the reward is here in this text. Now, our text begins, verse 14, I read that. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
the seventh angel blew his trumpet. So here, here's what I take as John is seeing is what he's being shown about the end. And I've, I've organized this into three headings, as is my custom. And we'll, we'll unpack it in this way. First, there's a universal reign, a universal reign. Next, I want to look at the final judgment. And third, the eternal reward. Universal reign, the final judgment, and the eternal reward. So let's first look at a universal reign. Now, I've been thinking uh, about the form of government that is best for human flourishing. I'm sure um, we, in this nation, we think about that certainly every four years, every two years. And I think most people would say, at least in this nation, the best form of government for human flourishing is a democracy. Now, ours, strictly speaking, is not pure democracy. It's a representative republic. You all know that. Uh, but it, it, I think by all accounts, it's been a pretty good success, right? Now, there have been statements, of course, from across the political spectrum that are somewhat hyperbolic, talking about threats to our democracy. I'm sure you hear that in the news and out of the lips of our political leaders. And what that does, though, it does reveal a weakness, right? It does reveal a weakness when they say threats to our democracy. It does reveal a weakness that the government is only as good as the representatives the citizens elect. We know that. You can elect somebody and like, oh, that's not, that's not what I thought they did, right? And every four years or every two years, we think, well, this next one, that'll be the guy. That'll be the woman. That, that's what we need, right? Now, alternatives to this American system, for good reasons, I think are often odious to people who cherish freedom, right? So we think of dictatorships in parts of the world, oligarchies, where they, they center and concentrate usually corrupt power. But then there's the monarchy. And if we think rightly about that, that's different than a dictatorship. A monarchy really functions as a divine stewardship. And really, that's been the predominant governmental structure really since the beginning of creation. But the only way that it works is if, if the God who is stewarding that responsibility, is real, <laughs> Yahweh, and if the monarch is just and governs with an accountability to God. That's the only way that that works. And I say all that because, in a sense, the, the first man, Adam, he was a monarch of sorts. You might call him a vice-regent. He was given dominion. He was given a place. He was instructed to, to fill it up with offspring and, and then steward everything for the benefit of people so that they would ultimately direct their thanks to God. Now, we know the story, right? He sinned, and by his failure, what he did was he welcomed in this interloper, Satan, and he, Satan, has harassed and tempted every ruler since. So we can just think of the kingdom, the, the ancient Israelite kingdom, their first king, Saul, failed, right? David comes along. He, he succeeded in many ways. He was called a man after God's own heart. And he was unique in the sense that, that God promised through his line then to raise up an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, the forever perfect king whose kingdom would never end. And as the divine son of God, this Christ would ultimately succeed where Adam and every other vice-regent has failed. Now, 
that fact, that reality, that promise made was, was echoed by the, all of the prophets through the centuries. And the Lord sent those to, uh, to explain that the fulfillment of that promise would come. I'll just give you an example. We, we read this together. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And listen to the words. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, I know we read this at Christmas because it's in, unto us a son is born, a child is given. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. But really, it's, it's that prophetic word, the promise of a perfect king on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, that preamble Looking now at Revelation 11, beginning with verse 15, the seventh trumpet is that prophecy fulfilled. Look at it again. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, as I've said in previous weeks, there are so many allusions to Old Testament uh, prophets. So there's a very clear one here to Daniel 7. You can look that up, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And notice what, what John hears. He hears the kingdom of the world has become, has become. Like it's already happened, and that's what's called the prophetic perfect. It's, it's written as if it's a, a present reality. It's an undeniable fact, and it's certain to happen because God declares it to be, but it's still future to us. And what this does, it implies that in some sense, the kingdom of this world was not in some sense Christ's before. The very declaration has become implies that prior it was not in some sense. And, and this, is where I meant, this is why I mentioned Satan, the interloper. He was introduced into the world by Adam's sin. And, and what he's been doing, he's been running and ruining things ever since through temptation. And this is what John wrote in his, in his first epistle. He said in John, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan has been deceiving and tempting people with sinful reasons to reject God. As the Apostle Paul writes, the prince of the power of the air is at work in the sons of disobedience. And he also says, the same one has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So there's, there's this evil influence that gets permeated through all of the earth. But with this seventh trumpet, this illegitimate rule of Satan through his minions that's come to an end. It's come to an end with the reign of Christ. And that, that is cause for worship. And I just want to note something that seemed interesting to me. In verses 16 and 17, if you look in your Bibles there. Now I'm going to refer back to Revelation 4.8 with six, verses 16 and 17 of our text in view. Back in 4.8, where the, the Lord is described by the living creatures to be the one who was and is and is to come, expressing, a, a, in a sense, a future. But here, notice what the 24 elders now say. 
we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power. It's not is to come. It is, is now, in a sense, and begun to reign. So what is to come prior to the seventh trumpet is now begun to reign. Again, that prophetic perfect. The future is now. The world has been taken back from Satan, the interloper. Now, what do we do with all this? We understand that even the most stable government in, in the world very much prone to evil. Now, again, I, I've said this, and I believe this as a Canadian. I think there are great benefits to living in the United States. Um, that's true. But the reality is some of our elected leaders, they appeal to that longing in us for something better. And it's almost messianic, the language you hear. Their soaring rhetoric makes all kinds of promises, hope and change, make America great, those kinds of things. And any good thing that they might accomplish ultimately are tainted, right? There's selfishness, there's hubris, and there's derision for some of the electorate. And, and the, the, the evil actions of our elected and appointed leaders, leaders are eventually revealed, right? They have sinful, God-denying ideologies. They abuse power, favor the interests of some and to the detriment of others, right? We, we get this. We long, we so long for something better. But brothers and sisters, we've got to know this. It's not going to come with the next election. Yeah, maybe the pendulum will swing. Have there been some good things happening at the local level and state level? You know, the, the, the forces that, that want to kill babies have been pushed back a little bit, right? The unborn. I think in this state, 16 weeks now. I mean, it's still tragic. Still tragic, but it's just a little less tragic. So those things happen, and some good happens incrementally, but the pendulum will swing the other way. There just is no form of human government that's going to do it. What we want and what we hold on to is the hope of a perfect king. And this picture that John received and has shared with us, it's a picture of perfection, completion, setting everything as it ought to be, accomplishing ultimately what Adam what Saul, what David, as good as he would in ancient Israel, what any president in the history of this nation or any other leader in the world has failed to do, this King Jesus will do. And the response of the elders, the 24 elders who are on their thrones in this image of, of worship before the Lord, their response to the universal reign of Christ is to worship and give thank, thanks. And brothers and sisters, we're gathered here to do the same. In anticipation of that day, we bow before Christ our King. We proclaim His kingship now. We lift Him up in order that He may draw people to Himself in anticipation of the day when all confess that He is Lord the universal reign. Well, the seventh trumpet also reveals the final judgment. 
the final judgment. Now, we know this. Almost no one wants to be judged. No one likes judgment, right? And you get it, right? To put the focus on our own failures and, and imperfections. Well, that's unpleasant. A common response to just the slightest criticism, don't you judge me, right? You might have even said it. The idea of being judged by another is so loathsome that even the Bible gets co-opted into this, right? You know, the most misunderstood and misused of Bible verses, judge not that you, that you be not judged, right? We don't like judgment. And the con- but think about it. The consequences of someone having a negative opinion of you or even to come before a jury of your peers in some kind of capital crime, that, that pales in comparison to what it's like to be judged by Almighty God because God's judgment is final and it's eternal. Now look at verse 18 in your Bibles. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. I skipped a section there just to package this together. So we have the reason for judgment. The nations raged. Well, what is that rage? Now that rage, raging can look very civilized, can't it? Nations raging against God. And all we have to do is, is, is see how those in authority promote things. And just the, the killing of the unborn is an obvious one. How, how the government, certain governments, some are trying to push back, but certain ones in power, so proud of the fact that there's just unrestricted access to killing the unborn. I mean... It's just so, well, of course. It's just become so normalized. And the whole thing is absolutely hideous. Or, again, you know, Aaron exhorted us this morning in Sunday school. You know, we, we can't have contempt. But, but those who push the ideologies around transgenderism, homosexuality, June, Pride Month. I was saying to my wife the other day, I said, you know what, we need to declare Humility Month. <laughs> it's like, this is Humility Month. And what that means is like, whatever God says, we just bow. It's like, you're right, we're not. That's what we need. But pride, boasting in our sin as a society, prancing around like, like, like well, this is good. Again, it looks very civilized. This is the nation's raging. And it's an anger, it's a hostility directed at God and ultimately directed at his people. So the nations raged, but your wrath came. And there's really another clear allusion to to another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. You can look it up, 51.25. It's it's very similar. Hear, hear, Hear what this says, Jeremiah. Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. Very similar. Destroying the earth idea. And now notice as well, who will be judged? Verse 18. The time for the dead to be judged. The time for the dead to be judged. 
So this is whether living or dead, the destroyers of the earth. And so this isn't against the polluters. Understand that. This is about those who have corrupted everything in creation through sin and promoting that sin. They have railed against God's law. And so we have to understand something that the grave is no escape from judgment. You may die, but you'll still stand before a living God if you've railed against him. In his first epistle, Peter, Peter wrote about those who are, who are living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, 1 Peter 4, 3. And what, what does he say? But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Well, how, how will this judgment happen? And I want to direct you to verse 19. And this may not seem like judgment language, but this is what it says. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, what's the significance of this? Why is this judgment? So I, I just want to pause here, and I want you to think this through with me. And I'll set it up this way. When, when Moses... When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, he was told, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Now, in Israelite history, <clears throat> at the command of the Lord, Moses and the Israelites built the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant was, was meant to represent the presence of God among his people. Now remember, God said, no one can see me and live. So the Ark of the Covenant was a sort of a, a stand-in, a, a physical representation of God's presence, and that was to be honored as holy. Now it was built, as Moses saw, according to a pattern of what he saw in heaven. So the Lord revealed that that somehow, from heaven, this is what's supposed to be on the earth. And when that tabernacle was finally constructed that ark of the covenant was kept behind the veil in the most holy place and only only the high priest could enter that most holy place and just once a year after a great deal of preparation on the day of atonement now you know this or you may know this if you read through your bibles when the israelites mishandled the ark of the covenant when they did not regard the lord as holy what i mean by that is holy w-h-o-o W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other, that is what it is to be holy, when they did not regard him as such, as regarded the covenant, they would die. I'll remind you, 70 men from Beth Shemesh, they died when they looked upon the ark of the Lord. 1 Samuel 6.19. Or maybe remember the story of when King David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. One of, one of those in the procession, Uzzah, his name, the, the ox cart stumbled. They shouldn't have had it on a cart. They stumbled, and he thought, well, it's going to hit the ground. And he put out his hand, and he died. Because they did not regard the Lord as holy. And so, understand this. The Apostle Paul describing the Lord in 1 Timothy 15 and 16. Here's how this works. He is described as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
unapproachable light. You cannot see God and live. So when God opens up his temple in heaven and reveals his glory, it ultimately brings judgment on the unrighteous. So the, the, the lightning and the, the rumblings and peals of thunder and all of that heavy hail, that's creation convulsing in agreement to his righteous indignation against sin. And that judgment is eternal. The presence of God brought to bear on the wicked will ultimately reveal the full fury of his righteousness and his wrath, which is likened, according to Jesus, to a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not an annihilation of the body and soul. That's not what this is, but rather it's an eternal torment where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, as Jesus described in Mark 9, 48. So listen, please. If you're not a believer in Christ today, that is what awaits you. This is eternally dead serious. But while you live in this body, there is hope for you. The remedy for your sin, the solution to your alienation from God is to be in Christ. And in Christ means that you're a new creation. Something old, it's gone away. There's something new that God has done in you. In Christ means that you have a new spiritual life in place of your dead spiritual existence. And all of us who are in Christ know that in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So understand this, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are in Christ today, all of this judgment, there's no fear of that. None at all. In Christ means that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So you, you've got to have that. In Christ means that you know that your sin had separated you from God and that that sin would have ultimately condemned you to an eternal separation from Him. Being in Christ means that you know that He died vicariously, that is to say, in your place as a full, full payment for your sin. Full payment. And having repented, having turned away from your sin, you believe that you are counted righteous in God's sight based solely on what Christ has done for you. It's a completely alien righteousness. When we stand before God someday, he's not going to say, show me what you've done for me. All we can say is, look what Christ did for me. That is it. Because you stand in Christ and he is perfect. You are counted and you'll never be outside of Christ and you'll be counted perfectly righteous for all eternity. Now that is glorious. No judgment. No judgment. And so that is you. You can certainly take comfort in this. You can take comfort in the fact that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive or dead, we might live with him. So, 
If not wrath, then what? Then what? Well, this is where we get to the eternal reward. Now, I like rewards. Who doesn't like rewards? Uh, I just noticed the other day, being a Chick-fil-A customer, I've got the app on my phone. I get loyalty rewards. Now, as I've been thinking about this, I was saying this to Kath. It's like every week I get like a breakfast sandwich and, a, and a, some other regular sandwich. Like, how, how am I getting all this free stuff? I, I, they give away more than I buy. But hey, I'm, I'm cool with it. I, I, I know from a marketing perspective why they do that. They, they expect that at some point in time I'm going to buy more than they give me. So they're getting something out of it, right? Well, it is, that reward is nice, but really it's only temporarily satisfying. The, the value of that reward goes away by the time I'm hungry again, right? But there's a kind of reward, an eternal reward, a reward that we've done nothing whatsoever to deserve or earn, and it never fades, and it is an infinitely good reward because of the one who gives it. Now, the nature of that reward is not described here in our text, but it is contrasted with the judgment that will be poured out on the nations that rage and the destroyers of the earth. So, let's talk about, from the text, who receives the reward. And of course, we've touched on this already, but we want to see it from the text. Verse 18, and the time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. So I think these are, in some sense, synonymous for one thing, all of these descriptors. Servants, prophets, saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. So servants, those who serve the Lord. I mean, just like, I'm about God. I exist. My life is His. Um, Paul, the apostle, described himself as a bondservant of the Lord, one who is attached to his master. And that's really what we are, brothers and sisters. If you believed in Jesus, you regard your life as in the service of our king. Then he describes prophets. And these are people who have the gospel on their lips. So, do you know the gospel? I think a true believer in Jesus understands why you're saved. And, th and that's basically can say, you know, Jesus died in my place. And saints. What is a saint? That, that's a holy one. That's one who's been set apart by God. Ultimately, in order to reflect his character. Ultimately, oriented around obedience to his word. It's an outworking of the, the spirit of God dwelling in us that drives us towards obedience. It's not something we, we go, okay, uh, now that I'm a child of God and I've got to figure out how to, how to please God. I mean, in a sense, we do. But the power for that is entirely alien to us. It is the spirit working in us, driving us, and, and giving us an appetite for things that are holy, things that are beautiful, good, pure, according to God. And ultimately, he talks about those who fear your name. And these are the true worshipers, the kind that God seeks, John 4.23. Ultimately, those who have faith simply believe. As Hebrews 11.6 says, though without faith, it is impossible to please him. That is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you seek the Lord today? If you're seeking the Lord, he will reward you. And, and the last descriptor here, both small and great. There's no distinction in persons here. Paul says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or, and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. 
It doesn't mean that those distinctions don't exist, but as it regards our salvation, it has no bearing. So in giving this reward, God does not favor those who have a religious heritage over those who don't. He does not favor the person with a high social standing more than the humblest servant. He does not favor male over female. No. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. And, and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I take that as a great comfort. The gospel is this universal equalizer. It's available to anyone. Do you believe or not? It's not like, well, I went to seminary. I, I get in better than you. No. Lots of people go to seminary and then go to hell. There's no distinction. And what is this reward? What is it? Well, we can look to 21 and 22, those chapters later, get a good idea there. But really, this is what it boils down to. The reward is life, eternal life. And we know, we know what that is from the prayer that Jesus prayed just before he was condemned to die. This is life. This is the reward we get. Jesus said this in his prayer. He was praying this for his, for his own. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. It's life because knowing God, knowing the Son of God, is life giving to you. Every good gift that God has. In Peter, he, he describes it as, as the believing process, as, as participating in the life of God. It, what is that? What, what is this mystery? It's, it's, you can't be more fully alive than to know God. To know God, to know the Son of God, that's life. That's eternal satisfaction. It is forever joy. It is comfort. It is beauty. It is goodness and love that never wanes or wears out. And that can only come from God who is love. That's the reward. Now, we'll get more descriptions later. But it's in contrast to the judgment. So, what reward and woe shows us is that God is both just and merciful. He is both just and merciful. God does not leave sin. He does not just sort of say, well, whatever, don't worry about it. He doesn't just cross out the record of it. No, there's, there's got to be full payment. And either you will pay or you've trusted in Christ and the Son of God already paid. And that's really what separates you from God's justice. Because He was just towards our sin in His Son He is merciful. And part of God's mercy is the universal reign of Christ. And for all of us who are long for that day to come, who pray, Lord Jesus, return, we will have a satisfaction of knowing that he vindicated every enemy and every suffering that God's people have ever experienced from the beginning of time. 
every, every occasion where the workings of the evil one have hurt and destroyed. All of that, on that day, God will say, I made it right. Justice is satisfied. And brothers and sisters, I hope, I hope that you're looking forward to the eternal reward. Ultimately knowing that, that the essence of it is knowing God and Jesus Christ. See, if you're looking towards something other than knowing God and Jesus Christ, you don't want the reward that God has for you. Well, woe and reward. And I pray that you're among those who will know God's reward. Let's pray. Father, uh, the fact of woes, the fact of judgment, that's a, that's a heavy thing. And I know all of us know people who seem to be on that trajectory. And so many in the world around us are going down that path. I pray, Father, give us compassion, not contempt. Compassion to relate, replace the potential in our minds for contempt. Give us joy in what we have received and cause it to uh, overflow in our worship. And Lord, we pray that amidst all of the distractions in the world around us, we know that we gather like this to remind one another of the, return, the eternal reward that we have in Christ, your Son. So Father, we... My prayer is that you would just simply keep us faithful to that day. Hold us fast. That Christ may be glorified in us and in his church. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.